Don't be afraid to get uncomfortable. Let the fear motivate you. And when you look back and on the rocking chair when you're in your 90s, what do you want that legacy to look like? Hopefully it's, you left everything on the field. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. In this episode, I have an insightful conversation with Joe Higgins. Joe is the epitome of the term serial entrepreneur. He has founded multiple businesses in industries ranging from wireless phones to hair salons to trash collection over his decades-long career. Joe takes us on a journey beginning with his childhood on a Wisconsin farm to his latest venture, Ethos Logos Publishing, a home and charter school curriculum based on classical education principles. With wisdom gained from his ventures over the years, Joe explains how he ties everything together with a sense of mission and purpose today. He emphasizes the importance of understanding your skills, finding problems to solve, taking smart risks, learning from failures, and leaving a positive legacy. Today, I'm thrilled to have Joe Higgins on the podcast. Connected with Joe a couple months back, and as he kind of started walking me through his background and the things that led him here to where he is today, it just hit me. You are the entrepreneur of entrepreneurs. You have started so many different things, and I'm really eager to get into that. But let's just start with a couple things. So you're in Patagonia, Arizona? I live in Tucson as my primary, and then we have a small ranch down in Patagonia, about oh, 15, 20 miles away from the border with Mexico. Raise a couple longhorns down there. Okay. How hot is it right now? You know, Tucson's a little cooler than Phoenix, and Patagonia's cooler than that. But uh, here in Tucson today, probably about 108, 107. But we get this real dry, like a blow dryer hitting you, where, you know, Texas or Florida, you get that humidity. So it's a dry heat, they keep saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when it's 108, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's, uh, hot. it's hot. So I'd like to always start kind of uh, at the beginning. So where did you grow up and what was it like growing up in your in your home? Ah, cool. So I'm, I'm from uh, originally from Wisconsin a small uh, farming community about 20 miles from Minneapolis over on the border. And it was the perfect childhood. We grew up a bunch of cousins and aunts and uncles and raising raising farms, uh, raising cattle, beef cattle, which is why I'm kind of back in it as I've gotten older because I missed that time of my life, I think. And uh, it, was, it was idyllic. We came home when, the, when it got dark and ate and we had forts and plays and going, you know, it was just a, this wild, amazing childhood, which I think is, was great for an entrepreneur because you were kind of on your own and kind of determining your own destiny. Most of my aunts, uncles, grandpa were all in the in their own kind of businesses. So that was modeled for me as a child. And uh, it's, it's not surprising that that's the way I ended up in my career choice. Yeah. Big family, small family. I have a sister who's uh, three years younger than, my, than myself. She's a CEO of a corporation out in Georgia, but extended cousins and aunts and uncles. And that was my, my social group, my family group that I grew up in. So you mentioned the ranch was ranching. Is that what your family income was derived from? Yeah. So they did uh, back before you went to the supermarket and bought everything in one spot. They had the butcher shop and they raised their cattle out there. So my grandfather was a butcher. My dad was a butcher, a couple uncles. And, and it was just part of us growing up. People from the small town would come out, drive a mile or so out and, and buy their meats and cheeses and and that was just what we knew. It was real community-based. And and I really miss that in life as we've gotten busier. I bet. So what was school like for you? Did pretty well. Didn't really work that hard at it. Kind of, I was a last-minute crammer guy. Got through college and grade school, high school, all that way. 
went to Catholic schools when I moved out to Arizona, graduated from a Catholic high school, then went on to the U of A. I started bartending for a little bit, and that was a crazy detour. It took me seven years to graduate college, and I don't have a doctorate. As they say in Tommy Boy, I was having a lot of fun and helped me become a better kind of salesperson, help refine my ability to deal with people, communicate with people. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but when you look back in the scope of your life, I probably learned more on my bartending business than I did in, uh, than I did in college. Isn't that funny? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> did you do it at all? Did you ever bartend waiter? No, I didn't. But when I was in college, I was involved in tons and tons of things on campus, a lot of different organizations, and some had leadership roles. And I learned way more outside the classroom than I learned in the classroom. And my, my guess is kind of looking at the college experience through my kids' eyes, it's not gotten better. Yeah. I highly recommend you fill your life with stuff as you're young. <laughs> That's for sure. How old are your kids? I have two. One's a just graduated grad school from ASU, which is up in Phoenix, and she's a speech pathologist, got her first job. And uh, I have a son who's a junior at the University of Arizona down here in Tucson. So both good kids kind of followed through the same Catholic schools. I'm on the board of a Catholic high school that I graduated from. My kids went to. So lots of lineage and lots of history. And and it's been great. Our family really, really kind of identifies with with our faith and identifies with Tucson. And how old were you when you moved to Tucson? So I came out to Tucson when I was in second grade. And every summer we would go back and get to live on the farm. So as soon as school was out, we were back there till about. I just started high school, a little after high school, then I got involved in sports and football and things and couldn't, but couldn't have asked for a better. In fact, my daughter asked me one time when she was 21, a couple of years back, she says, hey, what would you do different if you were my age or what you wish you could have done as a father? What would you have done different? I said, I mean, I wish you could have grown up like I did. That free play, creative, you know, no rules, no boundaries. Of course, when we grew up, there was no screen time. So it was TV was a, a rarity. It was just, it was just going out and figuring it out. That was beautiful. So college, what did you study? So I um, went in and started originally in some form of business, deviated a little bit, ended up with a degree in political science and economics, and uh, literally sat down with the, with the guidance counselor. And I said, look, if, if I don't figure a way out of this place, I'll never graduate. So we kind of created that model. So was not real dedicated when I was in college as to what I want to do. Always an entrepreneur. I think I started my first business when I was like 17 sold some lambs and things when I was really young and really got the bug for it. So I always knew that was the path. And I went to high school with a bunch of other other guys that were dads were doctors and lawyers and accountants and professionals. And I just knew that wasn't my path and my plan. And it wasn't really until I kind of got out and started doing my thing until I stumbled across Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad, where I read this book. And I'm like, well, that's that's what I was doing. That was me. And that's who spoke to me. And it was never that path of doctor, lawyer, professional. It was always the road less taken, which having been an entrepreneur yourself, you know that you know how that journey is. It's it's a crazy one, but I wouldn't change it for the world. That's a great book. And maybe yeah. it's probably been 20 years since I've read it, but that's one that I think that will stand the test of time and would do a lot of people a lot of good to read it. Can't recommend it enough. And he has a whole series of them. I'm trying to, as we'll get a little further here, we're talking about schools and you know, the Dave Ramsey model, which is save and, and don't have debt and pay off. And then you have the Kiyosaki model, which is build assets in yourself and create income generating assets. So it's two lines of thinking and, you know, some work great for others and, and others don't. So it, it depends on who you are and what your disposition is. But for me, it was always don't fence me in and give me that wide open spot and I'll, I'll do my best to make it work. So you talked about your first business at the age of 17 selling 
I think you said lambs. How long did that last? How did you find your way into that? Yeah. So, so when I was when I was really little on the, uh, in 4-H and whatnot, I, I bought and sold a lamb and my grandfather gave me 68 $1 bills. And I have a super eight video of me playing with them and put them on the, the, on the table. So that was kind of when I got the bite. My first actual business was out in San Diego. I had uh, in high school worked for a dry cleaner. So I learned that business. When I moved to San Diego, I found a local dry cleaner. And I said, look, I'll build a route and get clients and customers. If you'll do the work, I'll build you a new business. And we split the revenue. That was my first kind of business. Did that for a couple, two, three years, moved back to Arizona. And then just a whole series of other, other things. Started the um, first one back, uh, the kind of the real formal business where I had employees and stores and all those kind of things was uh, in the cell phone world. And this was, if you remember back when there was two cell phone carriers and then there became Sprint and T-Mobile and Verizon, and then there was like seven. We became a dealer for them, started selling out of the trunk of my car, had an experience in business-to-business sales, and got so busy and did so well, we opened a store and then another store and another store. And before you knew it, we had about 80 salespeople in about 12 retail locations between New Mexico and Arizona. I think a lot of this conversation we're going to have today is is timing and luck, <laughs> you know, the harder you work, the luckier you are. And there's been so many of my business opportunities that I stumble into that I just got really lucky and right place, right time and knew how to drive through the opportunity and, and do it. So that was definitely one of them. So talk to me about selling cell phones out of the trunk of your car. So while I was bartending, I, I went and I got a job at Cellular One. And then I moved into their outside sales division. So they kind of taught me the ropes of sales, cold calling, business to business, B2B, rose up to be the top salesman in the country for them. I kind of learned it. And all the while I was looking at, okay, what I'm doing here for this, this income I can do over here and kind of have an unending or unlimited set of income. And that's what kind of moved me. Remember when I went to start that business, kind of been planning towards it, lining up the dealerships and kind of planning my my exit, saved up a little money, like I had five, six grand and had a new baby and a new mortgage. And the week I was quitting, I broke out in hives on the whole half of my face and because of stress and nerves and, you know, all that pressure. But talk about getting out there and getting at it is, is having all those pressures behind you. There was no no way to but to make it. I could not fail. And um, just kind of did the same thing I was doing, but for myself, found some unique markets. Uh, there's a big produce industry down in Southern Arizona called Nogales, where the produce crosses from Mexico. Worked down there for quite some time, found out some success, got together with a group of produce guys that really liked me and kept referring me. And just little after little grew and doubled and grew and doubled and opened a retail store. And that went great. And ended up hiring these other salespeople from other carriers that like myself. I spoke their language. I knew what was their hot points created little businesses for them. And that's how we had the 80 business to business folks opened up the next retail store, the next store started helping my employees become owners, if you will, kind of set them up in business, let them open their own store and franchise model, kind of a franchise model before franchise, more of a distributor. And as our sales increased, I went back to my carriers and got more money. And so I could pay them more. A couple of them had residual income that I kept at, at our top end and but really helped probably four or five of my key people get into business themselves. So I would say that's a pattern we'll talk about a lot is like, how do we help others be successful? And then of course it blesses us backwards. So little by little, um, we ended up being one of the top dealers in the country for Nextel, kept T-Mobile certain quarters, certain months, Cricket, as they'd come through, we became a major player in that distribution. 
but you could kind of see as we're doing it that it would become a commodity. If you looked at pagers at the time, they were hot and then nobody wanted them. So I kind of looked around the corner and thought, this isn't going to last forever. So what next? So that was our wireless experience. Kids worked there. My wife was there, my partner. It was just a beautiful family business. And what time frame was that that you, you had the cell phone business? This would have been 98 to 2006, 2005, something like that. So pre-iPhone, this was yep. big old brick Nokia phone with a detachable battery and yep. a little StarTrack tax that would tip. Yeah. I remember those back that day. StarTrack was cool. If you had a, if you had a StarTrack, you were, you were something. Right. Right. So it was an amazing experience. We we're, you know, sponsoring golf tournaments and we're buying a ton of media in our local market. So, you know, all the perks that come with that trips we're winning around the, around the world. I mean, as the first business that was a real business or a formal business, couldn't have asked for something better. It just blessed beyond belief. So let's maybe camp on that one for just a minute. What was that moment when you realized that you were going to go do this on your own? What was that spark? And a question I always love getting answers to is when you came home and told your wife what you were wanting to do, what was her response? I think we might have talked about this earlier when we first met. Well, half the success of an entrepreneur is marrying the right right person. And my wife, yeah, I could not have asked for a better wife. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've come home and said, hey, we bought a garbage business or I'm in the cell phone world or I'm in the haircut, whatever else I'm doing. And she's just been supportive and right by my side the whole time. In fact, in most of our cash businesses, it was always a family member in the back of the house that was touching money and touching cash because I've heard so many nightmare stories of getting embezzled from and whatnot. So it was, it was great. Gave her the flexibility to be a mom and uh, to raise our kids and not be in a kind of a structured nine to five. And I always been a family business. I remember the deciding to branch out. One kind of thing about me, and I'd imagine many, many entrepreneurs, is I'm not a big rule guy. It just drives me nuts when I, I see stupid rules. And we'll talk about that more. But so in the corporate environment, as you're seeing people less competent getting, getting brought above you because they've been longer or whatnot, I just never handled that well. So as I become a, a leader of more people, I always kind of ran a really hard meritocracy. It wasn't about kissing butt or you've been here longer. It was, if you're good, you're going to get the football was always my approach. So that always, that was a motivator for me to get out of that corporate world. The other thing is unlimited income. I mean, I, I like the ability to eat what you kill and you can go as big as you want to go and work as hard as you want to work. And you're not limited. I, I know when I was in outside sales and sales every year, they would change the comp. As soon as I'd figure it out and start really, really running it, there'd be a new comp plan and they would take away money. So I thought, oh, heck with that. So those are two big motivators all through my life that as I get into politics and as I did other businesses, don't fence me in. I think that's to be an entrepreneur and to do this for a living, you have to work on your skill sets. You have to be comfortable. You have to understand risk. You have to know that you may not have a paycheck and you're the last one paid, but you also have to be a little, little crazy in the point where like, don't tell me what to do. I'm not going to follow that path. I'm going to take a harder one. <laughs> so the no rules mentality, I think there's a lot of people that feel that same way. Do you consider yourself a patient person? I didn't, you know, I learned that through this work. And in fact, I got heavily into the medical world right around Obamacare. And I had started up a few businesses and I was running a, a large doctor practice that taught me patience. It's just so complicated and so detailed. I would find in my other businesses, I'd kind of master them, kind of figure them out. And then I'd be on to the next one because I love the creative process. So I'd bring, bring in folks and make sure the operations are tight, but I wasn't the day-to-day. -day. Medical really kicked my butt because it was so complicated. Then I moved to politics, 
ran for office and whatnot, but that was another one. It's like playing chess on five dimensions. So it's not just a market you got to figure out and competitors. It's where's the stress points and what's happening. And it's human nature. I mean, that, those two industries taught me patience. How about you? Because that's a great question. I do not consider myself a very patient person. And <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll go back to the the cell phone business for just a minute. So I think you said around 05, 06 is when you got out of that. How did you get out of that? business? Did you sell that? Did you wind it down? What did that look like? So we, our model was smaller markets. So we would, we had locations and heavy presence in the, in Tucson, a million population, but we would go to the, the cities around us with a hundred thousand or 50,000 in population. I could buy media cheaper to make a bigger impact. We could own a market for a lot less. And I was setting up like not franchises, but licensing agreements with people that we put in business. So that was my model, but you could slowly see the sales churning. You could see the carriers opening their own stores and looking down the road, you could just see it becoming a commodity. And I always thought one day you'd go push a button on a machine and you outskirts your phone, which is about where we're there. So I knew it would end. A couple of my outer markets made it longer. So I went out looking for the next thing and I kind of went through my experience role. I said, I didn't want it to be anything with food or liquor or booze or anything like that because it's perishable and Nothing wrong with those businesses, but they're super intense. I mean, you've got to you got to live it, you got to own it, you got to be there. No, I didn't want that. I wanted something that was consumable that you would come back to over and over and over, so you could build up a client base and build a model and a brand that you could roll out for a while. I looked at things like gas. I looked at different things. I actually ended up in the haircut business, and I theorized that you know I went to the same lady to get my haircut for the last twenty years. Wherever she was, I'd follow. And I looked at the marketplace and you had all these fast, casual haircut spots, great click, super cuts, famous, fantastic Sam's or these chains. But if I made something that was dedicated directly to men, which most men go to those, and if I included the kids, so father, son, father, daughter could come and get a haircut experience that I thought I had a business model. So did a bunch of research, uh, spent a lot of time digging in, found someone out in Texas that owned nine or 10 great clips, a friend of a friend, and I flew out there kind of talked to him about the bigs, what worked, what didn't work, what he learned. One thing as an entrepreneur, I will say is you've got to know your homework. You've got to really, really spend time before you make the leap to understand every variable. And the best way to do that is find people in that business. So I am I am a nut when it comes to understanding what I'm getting into because it's my money. And if it doesn't work, it's, it's my tail. <laughs> so the cell phone business, it kind of seems like you you just kind of found yourself there. It was a natural progression, natural extension of what you had been doing as an employee. Most of the entrepreneurs that we have as guests on the podcast, I'm going to say that 90 plus percent of them more or less found themselves in their their area kind of by by accident. You were very, very intentional in how you went about the haircut thing. You didn't just find yourself there. Like you very intentionally went there. What were the other kinds of businesses that met the criteria, the repeat business and the other components that you talked about? Well, any kind of service business, I think, with you know, air conditioning service, plumbing service, those things. I just didn't have those skills. Do you cut hair? <laughs> I didn't do that either. Didn't learn. But I owned a trash company. We'll talk about that. But I, I ended up learning how to drive a trash truck because I figured I better know how to drive these big things if someone calls in sick. But in the haircut business, I wanted something that I could scale up as well. So I wanted something that I could spend the time in, build the market, build the brand and scale it and run around the country. 
So something that was franchisable was important to me. I looked around at that category of franchises. There's a ton of food franchises and, and whatnot, but that particular category, there was nothing really new at the time. And um, I started at about the same time that Sports Clips started out in Texas, which is now a pretty big chain. Our name was Sports Buzz, and it was sports themed and hardwood floors and lockers and staff was in uniforms. So I wanted something that I could put the energy in, build a brand, have a repeat business, systematize, and then franchise. So nothing really fit that from what I what I looked at. So that, that, that's why I, I picked it. And it's interesting. You, you went into it with a mindset of, I want to have the ability to franchise it. You didn't want to go buy into a franchise and go, you know, set up a bunch of great clips or, or, or whatever you, you wanted to create it from the ground up. Yep. Because the real wealth and the real success is the franchisor. So there are, there are franchisees that do well, 10 units, 15 units, 20 units, but the real money in my mind and the real opportunity was being the guy at the top. Remember, I just done that with the cell phone world. And because of the volume I was doing, I was able to go back to my carriers and negotiate better pricing so I could make my piece and then still pay my under group more. I had residual income with a couple of the carriers. So every day I'd wake up at the beginning of the month and there'd be a, a nice check from the work we'd done in the past. So I was trying to get to that point where there would be residual income. We create a brand. Maybe eight, 10 years later with a month, multiple units, the brand could be sold and the income stream could be sold for a rather large multiple. I've always kind of had in the back of my mind, I'm a real goal guy and write down and visions and statements is $20 million. That's always been my target. And the way I like to equate it is I'm the jockey and I'm looking for that, that perfect horse and I'll find that horse and we'll train the horse and we'll, we'll have the bloodline and we'll go and if everything's great. I'm on that horse and we're loving it. But if I don't see that horse winning the Kentucky Derby or getting me to that ultimate goal in my dream, then I'm looking for the next horse. So cell phones was awesome and it taught me a ton. In fact, each business teaches you so much. That one, I knew it was, I wasn't going to get me there. So I thought, well, okay, what can do it next? And that's why the franchise or model made so much more sense to me. I miscalculated. So there's a reason why I'm not in it today, but that's, that's everything. So out of college, you had your dry cleaning business. You had the cell phone business. You had the haircut business. How old were you? when you started the haircut business was early thirties. Yeah. I was probably 29, 30, something like that. 30, 31. Yeah. So somewhere in there, three businesses before the age of 30. Yeah. We had built a total of nine of the franchise or the haircut stores. I owned five of them and I brought partners in on the other four. So the cell phone business was kind of waning. We still had locations and the haircut was taking off. So it was, it's always this constant, looking around the corner, how's the business performing? What's the future look like? What's cash flow? How do I reinvest cash flow? I mean, if, as we continue this conversation, there's a lot of that. So I'll be running two or three things at a time. I was just going to say, I didn't, I didn't realize that the cell phone business and the haircut business, actually, there was an overlap. Yeah, quite a big one. But I mean, I think I had four or five stores from my 12 in, in cell phones, and I probably had four or five haircut stores. Cell phones continue to drop, haircuts started going up. So it was, I think as a business person, it's a delicate balance. Am I putting all my energy into what I have or is the market just tapped out? And am I just at a point where I can't get what I need to get out of this and I need to look for something else and no better time to start something or find a new job when you have one, but no better time to start something when you have some cash flow from one business that can help subsidize the next. And mind you, in the cell phone business, we're buying a ton of media through co-op. So I'm buying, I'm in the middle of radio, TV, outdoor, we have advertising agencies. 
So all that transfers now to the new business where I'm developing a brand and hiring models and creating images and logos. So it was just like this perfect synergy between the two. The fact that you were able to get a business off the ground and I'll add a, a market that you didn't really know a whole lot about and have this other entity running, you must have had really good people around you. That's the key. Systems and people. And we'll have this conversation over and over and over, right? So amazing people that saw the vision. And I of the I think it was four that I owned or five that I owned of haircut and nine or four that I franchised or licensed. I'm giving people equity. I'm giving them ownership. So they're as committed as I am. So as we're building a brand, we're distributing the cost of advertising. We're it's a team commitment. It's not just me sitting at the top trying to own them all and run them all and kill myself. So that's been a model for me all along. How do I empower others? And give, you know, because most of these people that I'm helping get into business, I always in the back of their mind, think, gosh, I'd love to own my own business one day, but just never could do it. Never could pull that trigger or figure out how to get there. So what I'm doing is just kind of handing it over and saying, okay, here's how it works. I'm here the whole way. We're going to do this a certain way and collegial and we'll listen. If they have a different idea, let's try it and see if it works. And let's, if it works, we'll run it through all the other stores. So a lot of that was going on. It wasn't super formal yet, like a typical franchise where it's like, here's what we do every day and don't deviate. It was a lot. We're figuring it out on the fly as we're building. So what type of locations work? How do couponing work to bring in new clients? Database marketing. We stumbled on the kid thing. We really didn't kind of anticipate it being as successful as it was. So in each of our locations, stores, we'd have a cartoon area and a little little box area of toys. We had a little car that you'd sit in. That became the big driver of the business because no one in the market was doing kids at the time. Cutting hairs with kids is really difficult. Lots of stylists don't like it. So if you can mix it in, it's a better fit. And the family experience coming in was the mix, was the the thing. So I would say a lot of learning, a lot of figuring it out on the fly, lots of great people that made partners or that I brought into the operations. And then systems behind the scenes that, you know, we understood marketing because we did it so well in the haircut business or in the cell phone business because it was, it was part of our co-op dollars. We got money from our carriers. So that transferred into every other business I've ever owned since, right? So I understood branding, I understood marketing. I really learned how that works. As you were talking about coupon systems and hiring models and database marketing and on and on and on, I think a lot of people, when they think about a business, like they know, hey, these are the kind of core areas of a business. You've got, you know, finance and accounting, you've got marketing, you've got sales, you got, but there were a lot of layers to that. Did you have a robust business plan day one and you knew like all these different things that you had to do, or did you kind of get into it and then realize, oh, I need to hire a photographer and go do a photo shoot? Well, my, my thing was always brand. I wanted you to walk into one of our locations, whatever business, and we'll talk about this and other things I do. I want you to walk in and go, this is a national company. They've thought through the details from artwork to how we answer the phone, to jingles on our ads, to the way our uniforms look, even to the point where my stylists would decorate their areas with kids' stuff and their own, their you know their personal stuff. I'd always kind of pull that back and say, let's keep this a little more professional covered up tattoos a lot of times because, uh, you know, we want to make it more of a family place. The models we hired were not quite Hooters looking girls. They were more girl next door attractive so that mom wouldn't be afraid to let dad go and get a haircut there. So we really thought through all that. And as I got further in my business career, I started doing more focus groups. I started uh, bringing stakeholders together, interested in my product, in my field and asking questions, videotaping and trying to refine that over and over and over. 
So I'm a real nut about image. What's your presentation to the world? The last thing I want to be is a local, look local. But I learned that through the cell phone. When we opened the cell phone business, we put a logo. It was called Gotta Go Wireless. Did a bunch of marketing. It wasn't really hitting. It was a crowded marketplace. My advertising agency said, let's brand with you guys. My partner and I had a gentleman who was, his name was Ricky, and he was Hispanic, and I was the white guy. So all of a sudden, we started branding ourselves to the market and on billboards and whatnot. And we became uh, like the car dealers do this. You know, they're, they're, they're the ones on the front face because people identify with faces. So all of our clients all of a sudden started seeing one of the two of us and they could identify with the one of the two of us and they, they had a, a higher identification with our brand. So then when I went to the haircut business, I thought, all right, we got to do that again, but let's find girl next door look. When I went to the trash business, I did a cartoon guy. You know, I tried to brand my experience through a story, right? So you're going to put upon that picture of us on the billboard a story, good guys, bad guys, I like them, I don't like them, or the girl next door, cute girls, not to the point where I wouldn't let my husband go in there, but there's a brand that we've established. So again, that's trial and error. That's hiring good people, having a good marketing company and agency, getting out of the way and listening to them. I mean, professionals that know it more than I do, and it's being able to let go and watch. Lots of data metrics, right? So how's it working? Let's, before we buy the next set of ads or the next campaign, what kind of responses are we getting? A lot of that. As you were talking about building the brand and the, the consistency and, and so forth, the details, I asked you earlier if you would describe yourself as a patient person. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a, a different P. Or are you a particular person? Anything that's facing the client, yes. I am a nut about it. I'm just obsessed about it. I ended up getting in the school business. I piped in scents. You have the, like, casinos do it so that when you walk in, you get a smell of something. I had classical music going, wax the floors. Every business I own, I'm, I'm a super careful about uniforms, logo integrity, clean windows, What's the experience that that client is coming into? And I'm not about it when as a client, as a patient, or as a consumer. When you go out to eat, you look at the bathroom at the restaurant, all those little things. I can tell if an owner has attention to detail based on how the staff greets me when I walk in the door, based on the cleanliness of their place. It's, I'm a nut about it. Are you? <laughs> it sounds like this resonates. It's funny. If you were to ask a lot of the people on my team, you know, is Scott particular, the facial expressions you would get would just tell <laughs> the whole story. So, and I've had to warn people in the interview process for certain roles and very, very particular. So the billboards real quick, did you get recognized around town? You know, remind you, I was in a kind of a high volume meat market bar for a while. It was a country bar before apps and dating apps. So I had a big circle from that. Very involved in rotaries and custom. So I was, yeah, we got really recognized through all that stuff. Yeah. It was like the icing, a whole new level of people. Do people like interrupt you at dinner or things like that? No, not that okay. much, but, but they would like recognize you or, or feel like they know you, right? So there's a comfort level, which is what we wanted to achieve. Just that opportunity to say, yeah, we're normal people. And, and yeah, that, that was part of it. You talked about Rich Dad, Poor Dad earlier. I take it you're a reader. I see a lot of books on on your shelf and you know, we'll talk about what you're doing today, which education, obviously, reading is a big part of it. I gather you're an avid reader. Have you read or did you read The E-Myth? Yeah. Oh, yeah. E-Myth Revisited and both. Yeah. You know, the lady who makes the great bake cupcakes and then she finds out she's running a business. So very different skills, I think, is where you're going, right? And when you talked about going into the, the haircut business with the intent of it being something that you could franchise, he kind of talks about that in the book, that you need to go into the business with a mindset of what does this look like at scale? What does it look like when we've got two locations, 20 locations, a thousand locations, 
And I think a lot of people have to get started and do things for a little bit before they get to that mentality. But you, you had that from day one. Yep. So I was kind of an odd kid. I remember reading Entrepreneur and Inc. magazine when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, cutting out articles, putting them in folders based on how they do it. This one failed and didn't make it. How do they turn it around? I mean, I was I was researching this field and what I'm doing from the moment I could start reading because I knew this was where I wanted to be. And that's why that's why I told you to do your, do your research. But I had been devouring how to's stories, what did work, what didn't work, what industries, what things for a long time. In fact, I've came across one of those old things and we're talking 12, 13 years old and organizing them <laughs> so that I could say, okay, here's the turnarounds, how they work. And here's, here's ideas. And yeah. I couldn't organize my room at age 12, <laughs> let alone, you know, right. <laughs> proactively go read business magazines and, and clip articles. So the haircut business, how far into the haircut business did you fully get out of the cell phone business? I think I'd had five or six locations by that time when uh, I had one cell phone less left way out. It's called Sierra Vista and Outer Market. It was still doing well. And, and all the while, as I'm building the, the haircut business, knowing I want to take it to a scalable level, I'm systematizing as much as I possibly can. Training manuals, cash handling manuals, site location, marketing, everything. I'm trying to get ready for the franchise move. I start getting offering circulars from around the open source that are out there and I start reading them. I start writing my own contract and they're, you know, they're good 300 page contracts to then give to a lawyer to bless it and move forward. I find that in my state of Arizona, there's two franchise groups that have started here and that are still based here. One of them is called Alpha Graphics. Ever heard of them? You know, it's a print shop, right? The other is called uh, Stone Cold Creamer, which is around the country and it's based out of Phoenix. So as I'm getting closer, closer, and I'm doing my due diligence, and I'm opening and building, and things are moving, I got on the phone and called up the CEO of Cold Stone Creamery out of the blue. I thought, see if I can get in front of this guy and have a conversation. He takes my call. I schedule an appointment up in Phoenix with him, and we spend the day together. And he could not have been more gracious. And he went through what it's like to be a franchisor, what the pitfalls were, what the positives were, on and on. At that conversation, he said to me, Joe, if you're going to be a franchisor, get ready to litigate. He said, now that we're at this point and we're this big, it seems like we're doing a ton of litigation. In the franchise world, franchisees, I'm setting you up in business, love you for the first three to five years. After that, they're like, why are we paying this idiot 5% of my fees or 10% of my fees? Because they figured out the model and they're on their own. People trying to take his brand around the world and he'd have to sue in foreign courts. So he just basically said to me, get ready to litigate because that's what we are now at. So they're supplying and they're opening and they're bringing on franchise, but there's a lot of laws around franchises and whatnot. And it really changed my entire outlook at the process because two things, there wasn't enough revenue per unit to make enough and litigate and do everything I needed to do. It's like, if you own a McDonald's, they're doing a million gross a year. My stores are doing about 20,000, 25,000 gross. So for me to take my piece and do what I needed to do, would have been really tricky to get to that. Remember riding the horse and I'm on my path. Number one, number two, the staff in a haircut world is not super professional. Lots of fights, lots of cat fights, lots of girls that don't get along together. And really, yeah, just a different vibe of staff. And I looked at those two things, enough revenue to justify where I wanted to go and that. And I thought, "Mm, I can't see myself doing this for the next 20, 25 years. So I, got off that horse, brought in some managers that have been running my stores, made them owners, started getting out of it 
And it kept going for a number of years. In fact, there's still two or three open here in Tucson that I'm no longer a part of, but those managers are now running them and they're continuing on. I'm part of their story on owning a, it's a great business for a person that cuts hair and that knows the industry and can make a good living plus a little bit at a location. So wound that business down, knowing that I was going to wind it down, found the next one and started growing another one. But this CEO of Coldstone, this is such an ironic story, did me a huge solid, changed my life, opened a door to me and let me see something I never would. I could have been down that road 10 years before I figured that one out. It turns out his name was Doug Ducey. Doug Ducey goes on to run for treasurer of Arizona, then becomes our governor. So fast forward five, six years, I'm doing a talk radio show every morning. I'm kind of the conservative Republican talk radio guy for a you know, partner. I get a call from Doug Ducey's scheduler. He wants to come on the show. So I get him on the show and I said, Doug, I don't know if you remember me or not, but you did me an amazing solid by opening your door. You were busy. You didn't have to do this. Let me help you get elected down here. Let's see what we can do. He goes on to become the governor and he's an amazing story. But that's a story of someone who opened their door and took the call and helped the next guy get through the process. So hopefully everybody listening is emulating that. I am totally, anytime I can mentor anybody who wants to start a business and all the experience I've got, I'll sit with them explain what it's like, what to look out for, but how ironic that whole little little journey was with me and Doug Ducey. Did he remember you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So a couple things in there that really stuck out. One, I think that there are at least as many people that are willing to open their door as their people aren't willing to open their door. And I think that's a great piece of advice. If there is somebody out there that you want to emulate, reach out. Worst thing they're going to do is say, no, sorry, I can't, but I'm willing to bet that if you come to them and here's my story and here's what I'm looking for. And obviously you weren't competing. <laughs> you, you weren't selling ice cream. You're selling haircuts. I think that people are very, very willing to help. And that's kind of the spirit behind this whole podcast is we want to encourage and educate, help other entrepreneurs to not make the mistakes that, that we've made and, you know, this is just a this is a way of doing it in mass versus one on one. But I, I totally think awesome and aim high, right? I mean, this guy had you know five hundred. I don't know how many locations they had, but they're a mass, massive national brand, international brand. He took the phone call, and I'm like, all right, let's spend some time together. He's very gracious about it and very candid, which which I am too with people. You know, I never say I don't like your idea. I never try to kill it because in this world we do this entrepreneur world, there are naysayers around every stone. And if I listened to him, I would be sitting under under a table every day. You got to be passionate and committed. So I'll never discourage someone, but I will just tell them to think about this or call that or look at here, or look at this one or call me back in a month and let's see where you've come. And I always throw the tennis ball back to them, you know, right? I'm not going to do it for you, but let's, you know, here's some stuff. Call me back if you need help. And if they call, I keep going. Let's just keep moving. So you've talked about mentoring. Have you had mentors yourself? Oh, Yeah. I think everybody should, and I, I'm sure, I hope everybody does. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got uh, men in my prayer group that are older and established and very wise in that world. I've got business people. In fact, there was a kind of a stage where I'm I'm rising up into CEO levels, and I've got a lot of good things going, and I thought, I need a mentor. So I tried to find someone bigger and higher up than me, and that had a bigger organization. Called him out of the blue, kind of moved cursory, and said, hey, let's have breakfast. And we become close friends, just to keep me in check and just to be a sounding board and just to, you know, each, you know, my prayer group guys are hitting me a different direction and the, the large CEO guys another, but it's good for me to constantly ping in that back. Like 
why am I doing it? What's the purpose? Is that, am I just chasing money now? Or how am I serving my community? All those things. So yeah, no, I, I think you're never done having a mentor, hopefully. So haircut business, you decide time to get out of there. What did you do after that? So I'm, I'm buying advertising on bus shelters. And it works exceptionally well for all my businesses because I can geolocate around a location in a crowded market with a lot of stuff bombarding you from the airwaves. Outdoor is consistent and there. I would put out an A-frame in front of my stores, my haircut stores, and I would get a 30% bump in traffic, which that's how I got into politics, which is another deviation, but we'll, we'll get back to that. So remember that one. But I started buying these bus shelter ads. The company that had the contract for the bus shelters also had to pick up the garbage and clean the the wash off. They're telling me what they're paying per month and they're complaining about the process. And I looked at the number and I looked at the labor and I looked at the equipment and I says, well, let's, why don't you let me take the contract over? So I, I took over a trash contract and we ended up uh, driving all night with two crews, picking up garbage, taking it to the landfill. And then I'm looking at my equipment, which is pretty expensive. And I said, what else can I do with this stuff? So I started building a route and I ended up uh, with about 12 trucks and we ran 20 hours a day and we had roll-offs and we got into all kinds of different things. Again, consumable, right? So I had a client every month that would pay me on time. The trick with that business is it's all commodity. It's priced. You can't be an artesian garbage collector, right? You just, are you the lower price guy and you show up every week? That was my two big things. So I just built and built and built and built and we'd make a little money and buy another truck and buy another truck and make a little money. And at the peak, we were doing pretty well in sales. I thought my exit might be waste management or one of the big guys coming in and buying you out because that was kind of the pattern. As soon as you get to a certain size, they would like, all right, I'm going to take you because you're the low price guy and I can raise my prices. That didn't happen. 2008 recession started to hit. Fuel started to really creep up there and climb up there. The capital market seized up so I couldn't keep buying new trucks. So my older trucks got more and more repairs were happening. My mechanics were making more money than I was because it was just keeping them going. And slowly but certainly that, that business went away as well. So real quick, 2008, you got out of the cell phone business in 05, 06, and there was the haircut in there too. So did you have all three of those going at the same? I don't, I think I might've had one store in, in cell phones still plug in. And then I had the haircut and trash for a while. Wow. So the haircut and the trash, did they start right about the same time? The haircut first, then trash. I bought into the trash business. Wow. So right around when, when I got the conversation with Doug Ducey, I'm like, all right, time to look for next one. Get on the next horse. And the trash had a lot of positives to it. Capital is the key. And I just was, you know, I always had a hard time as an entrepreneur, you will find this as well, getting banks to say yes. So most of my capital comes from my houses or prior businesses or credit cards. The trash business was the first time that I had banks say yes on purchasing equipment. And it was a local credit union. And they, they're amazing through the process because they knew me and they knew the history. So had that going then while those two were kind of humming tra haircuts were just, I was handing them off to managers and I had less, less responsibility. I developed a retail center with a friend of mine, a small commercial real estate development, never done that. And so I had those two pretty heavy moving haircuts. Now were on its own with our, with managers running them. And I had a small piece coming off the top, but nothing too crazy. How much did a garbage truck cost in 2008? Well, this is good. This is their, but new, they're a quarter million bucks. I was buying them used from municipalities around the country because they usually take care of them pretty well. So anywhere between 50, 60, 20, 30. I had roll-off trucks. We had a roll-off contract picking up for the city of Tucson. I mean, it, it's a logistical thing. And I think in the end, when I look back, I was undercapitalized. If you're going to really do that business well, you come in and buy all new, 
and you just go hard and you build. A friend of mine did it in the roll-off world and sold his big company, to, or a bunch of money to waste management, but you, he had a ton of capital to back him up. I've always been, I've never been good at raising money with friends and I've never brought in partners. It's always been my own. So I've never been able to scale that way. I'm not comfortable OPM, other people's money. <laughs> Just not me. You mentioned city of Tucson was, was a customer. Were you primarily selling to municipalities? No, it was mainly retail or residential HOAs. Communities read hit hundred houses at once. So while I'm in the business, cause I don't know a darn thing about trash. There's a city of Tucson, small business or a trash commission. I get appointed to the trash commission. I figured if I'm in that room, I will learn how the real people do it and how the real market works. So I'm on this thing for a couple of years learning. And I learned that you can't have old equipment. You've got to constantly be recycling. A contract comes up to do some work for the city of Tucson. And I bid on it. Open bid. You know, I was up against the big guys. I win the contract. So if I hadn't been on that committee to learn and to get out there and understand my business more, I would never would have gotten the contract. Contract changed our life. We ended up picking up roll-off recyclable bins, those big 40-foot structures, but full of recycling. Did that all over Tucson seven days a week or something, something crazy. And then when 2008 hit, the Chinese quit taking all the recyclables. Remember that period of time? Because we'd consume everything, put it in the ship, send it back to them for recyclables. They shut that off after the 2008 downturn. So they canceled the contract. And I lost that. And that's when the business really started. Fuel was going up pretty high. I couldn't get capital markets to buy new equipment. Lost that big contract. And it was time to get out. I ended up selling that business just basically for, for asset value to a competitor and let him, young, a small guy, do it. Something that struck me in the cell phone business, I think it was both B2B and B2C. It sounded like it started B2B yep. and you got on B2C. Obviously, the haircut world is B2C. Yep. Now you're... B to M business to municipality, like that's got to be a whole different world dealing with government than businesses and totally. consumers. Totally. You know the game. And now in my latest business, it's all government. So you talk about patience, you talk about frustration at following rules. It's just drives me bonkers, but just keep plugging. But municipality, any kind of government contracting, it's crazy. And it's gotten worse in the last 10 years, you know, talk about government efficiency. I mean, that one, Drives me nuts. So trash business, get out for asset value. What next? You mentioned the retail development. Yeah. So I developed this retail center, put a couple of my businesses in and rent it out. It works great. It's amazing. Did it with a friend from high school. And when 2008 hit, one by one, the small businesses start moving out of the retail center. So at the time I had cash flow from things and it was working, but then as, as everything starts sliding, Ended up having to give that back to the bank. So took a little hit on that. So that was my first foray into development. And I love and I give so much attention and appreciation to those developers out there that do this for a living because there's a million variables that you don't understand. And if you've learned anything about how I tend to ride my horses and do my thing, I want to know the variables and I want to be able to control them and it's my cash. When you're in the real estate game, it's capital work, it's zoning and municipalities, it's time value. I mean, it's a don't look envious on that developer who's really, really rich because, man, they got their life line. So I learned that world, which comes back and helps me down the road. But I really understood development. And I said, that's not for me. Too risky. I'm a kind of guy, I don't know about you, but I go to Vegas, I don't gamble. So my whole life is a gamble, but I don't, I don't live that way. I want to know the variables. I want to know everything going in and out. I'm not a big Vegas fan. Yeah. I work too hard for it, right? And right. the house wins. <laughs> I never win. Right. So the real estate development, that was a buy and hold? Yeah. My partner from high school had the land, couldn't develop it. We went to a bank, got it funded, filled it, 
put on a shelf. This was going to be like the 401k. 20 years from now when the tenants pay it down, this is an extra chunk of money. And then when 08 hit and everything started moving out, it became a cash drain. So what I thought would be one thing turned into be a real albatross and a real problem, which again, turned me off to being development. I've owned some rental houses. I didn't like that either. So I'm just not a real estate, me personally, Not I'm not set for that. But there's so many people in real estate that couldn't imagine 150 employees and operations and opening door. I mean, to each their own. I just learned that wasn't mine. You've had a lot of challenges with these businesses. Were you discouraged along the way? Man, I love, I don't do it for money. I love what I do. I, no, I love the hunt. I love the creative process of it. And it wasn't until, gosh, I'd say in the last six, seven years where I found mission and purpose, which is American K-12 education, which takes all these skills and bundles them into a bowl and says, it's super important. I mean, if we're going to fix this country, it's going to come through our K-12 system. And I may never see the end of it. It might be a 35-year effort, but that's the fix for the country. So that's what, so when I stopped chasing businesses and money and just, I'm going to build, and I found business and money and things and mission and focus, it's a whole different ballgame. If you're looking at a business, if you can tie in something that's important to your society, your family, or your community to your skill set as a business person, look out. So that's where I'm at now. But all these things that I did that we're talking through taught me something. And we're able to, and I think it's God, preparing me and teaching me for each step of the way of what's coming. Because as I got into this, this last thing we're going to talk about, super complicated, unbelievably difficult, pulls on all these experiences, pull up everything. So no way I could pull off what I pulled off if I hadn't had a trash company and a haircut business and a cell phone business and all that other stuff. So after I got out of the, the building and the... So or the garbage business, I had run for office right around that time, 2008. And what was the office? Board of Supervisors, countywide race. There's five soups. I challenged an incumbent Republican in the primary. And that was an offshoot of, I kind of had that moment of making money and working. And I kind of says, this is it. So I started plugging into my community, started in Rotary and worked my way up into uh, the Catholic world. Catholic Community Services, which is a big social service agency, adoption and dentists and healthcare and, and immigration, Catholic school boards, just a lot of things Catholic, because that was my way to give back to my faith. And after about seven years on this big, huge, fix the poor, save the poor, help the poor board, we're raising money, we're doing all kinds of stuff. And we'd have these end of year meetings and we saved hundred, we helped a hundred thousand people this year. And the next year was 120, the next year was 150. And it was like, kept getting bigger. And I'm like, man, we're working our tail off here and, the, and it's getting bigger. It's not getting better. So it became crystal clear to me that it was a policy and it was the way our community was run. So I said, well, let me get in and run. And I ran for office, took all my marketing background, right? So I had vehicles wrapped and I had banners and billboards and knocked and walked and did all the work. Ended up losing, which in hindsight, thank God, because um, that opened up other doors for me. But from that day, from that experience, I interviewed with another friend who's become my real close friend on a radio show. And he was offered the opportunity to do the morning drive time on this talk radio section. He called me up, said, you want to do it together? So we had a seven-year run on a morning radio show called Wake Up Tucson. And it was amazing because our, our mission was always, how do we make this place more small business friendly? We held the elected officials to task. Used to drive me nuts when they would uh, be on the campaign trail and say, yeah, we're here for small business. We love small business. They get elected and they ignore you. So our job was to hold them accountable. We interviewed restaurateurs, national authors, U.S. Senator McCain. And we were in the middle of it, day to day, play by play, three hours every morning. And that taught me 
the flow of politics. And when I mentioned to patients, that was the final patient step because politics is chess on five dimensions. Everybody's got an oxbean gourd or something they want and how do you get there and how do you pull strings? And unbelievably important in my business career because I will say from when I started being an entrepreneur to today, it's so regulated and political and politics-based. Whether it's rent seekers or large players in the industry that want to keep you out or whatever, we are heavily, heavily in this bureaucratic melees. So that experience on air and meeting people that run this country taught me a lot, then became important to me down the road. Morning drive. What time did you have to be at the radio station? So I'd get up about 3.30. We were on air at 6. So 6 to 9 every day. It was so fast because then I would go out and do my work, right? So that was just the morning when I woke up and did my thing. But unbelievable experience, man. I, I just can't tell you what I learned and who I met. It was fun. I had a, had a co-host that we just laughed. It was like this, like we're sitting having a conversation. And oh, by the way, there's, I don't know, maybe thousands of people listening every morning. And I am just meeting and getting fed and, and devouring every article that would pop up in the news. And it was a, an amazing experience. I imagine that. You wake up at 3.30, have that cup of coffee, take a shower, but then you're going through the newspaper, you're looking for what's developing right now, and you're coming in with fresh topics every day. Yeah, prepping for the interviews we're going to have, it'd be an author, you name it. What was happening? We did a lot. We were hyper-local because you had so many folks doing Fox News and all the other stuff nationally syndicated. Our focus was on really local. So you had to weave a story. You had to explain the boogeyman, and you had to explain the good guys, and you had to explain... You know, we got to the point where people would call us like a little small business owner that was getting a permit to open an ice cream store. So he goes and gets his plans approved. And they say, why do you have two bathrooms? You're not big enough. You only need one. So he redoes his plans, builds this thing. Spectre comes out, says, where's your two bathrooms? You only have one in here. You need two. He never opened. His wife said, we're done. Those stories were getting untold. And, and because we come from that world as small business people, we knew exactly what it meant to their life and their future and their family. So we would get on the air and just beat the heck out of these stories till there was change, until people understood, look, 90% of the people in my market, probably yours too, are small business, which is under 500 employees, according to the national. So let's be their voice. Let's hold accountable these municipalities to let them experience what it's like in our world. I mean, it's, it's brutal. You know, your last one paid. You got your entire life on the line. Just let's make it easier on you. How's that sound? Just a little bit easier. That was our mission of the show. You said you did it for seven years? Seven years. Do you miss it? No. It got to be a tired, worn out shoe. You're still having the same conversations over and over a little bit. I tried to get to move towards more of a podcast, long form. Let's take bigger issues. Let's open up some podcasts. We're just starting at the time. And I'm a, I devour podcasts. I love a good three-hour interview. Just love it. So... That's where I wanted to go with it. So here's, here's an interesting aside. As you gobble these stories over seven years, foreign policy, economics, border issues, small business, healthcare, you name it, patterns started to emerge. And my model was to put them in a, in a PowerPoint. I'd have them broken down by 40 different patterns. And it was 22. And then finally, I got it down to 12. And I wrote a book called The 12 Arguments Why America's on the Wrong Track and the One Way to Fix It. Each argument stood on its own. And each argument was tested through personal experience as, as a business owner in my life, historical references, and just stats and facts, like where we're going as a country. So I write this book, put the first chapter and intro on my blog website, get busy. I got running charter schools and other things. And the one solution that I reference is the schools. So I'm working my solution. And I, I get a phone call from a gentleman out of Wisconsin, where I'm from. He's 90. 
He's in the Rotary, small business guy. And he goes, where's your book? I said, well, I got busy and it's outlines there and I've got a half it done. And he goes, look, I'm too old to fix what's coming. You need to finish the book and get that done and get that out there. So if that wasn't the call from God back to me, he's a business guy, Rotary, 90, me when I'm 90, to be part of that solution and get that done. I did finish the book. And right when I was you know, getting it edited to be published, I thought, I looked around the marketplace and I said, what am I going to really add to this discussion that's going on right now? And all this will do is take away from what I'm trying to achieve, which is the policy stuff in K-12 education. So I, it's sitting on a shelf, it's all done. But each, each of the arguments, banking and debt, the decay of the family, just goes on and on. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on those, but I think we're on a wrong path. And I think it's our generation, I'm a Gen X, that's going to have to get in there and roll our sleeves and figure it out. So you referenced a minute ago, you were on air from 6 to 9 a.m. And then after that, you went to your, your job. Is that where you were working in the charter schools? No. So development, out of the trash, ran for office, end up doing the radio show. I go over and I start helping a friend of mine, a doctor friend of mine, run his practice. He's got three physicians in his world, spent seven, eight years with him, and we ended up building it to 14 providers. He owned a high complexity blood lab, medical lab. I went over and turned that around, took that over and uh, got that, got that humming. Really got deep into American healthcare. Uh, and there's a whole, I did a podcast on this and I ran bills at the state legislature and I look for entrepreneurial edges within American healthcare. And there aren't many. And this is just right around Obamacare 2010. So doors are getting shut everywhere and opportunities are going away. Essentially, what Obamacare did was nationalized our healthcare system through insurance companies. So super frustrating. That's why you asked me earlier about patients. In that industry, in that business, it taught me patients. Nothing more complicated, and I've done a ton of different businesses as we're talking, than American healthcare. We are coming up on our annual benefits renewal, and I'm already just bracing myself for what that's going to mean and pages and pages of stuff I don't understand and Nobody's happy, right? Doctors aren't happy anymore. Patients aren't happy anymore. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's 20% of the economy, though. So that's why I was in it. Like when we talk about this opportunity, right? 20, you know, going towards 20 million. What bigger than American healthcare? So I had started up, uh, so here's a great two businesses that I came up with. One, when a patient would come in and see a doctor and they say, hey, you're pre-diabetic, you're hypertension, we're going to put you in all these medications. Or if you lose 20 pounds or 40 pounds, you could avoid this. Then they'd take, send them off. And then six months later, they're back in. They haven't lost the 20, 40 pounds. So I created a medical weight loss business inside of a doctor practice. So the doc could say, well, hey, go talk to Sally Sue in room 20 and she'll help you through this process. So I created a medical weight loss business that looked at sleep and hormone therapy and calorie restriction and try to get to the root of your psychological issues. That would then be a franchise model that could go sit inside of other doctor practices around the country. Also came up with an idea of... Um, all right. So, you know, Priceline revolutionized hotels, right? So a hotel room is a perishable inventory that by the end of booking time, it's useless. So what Priceline did is says, let's create an opaque market so you can maintain your price at the front desk, but you can sell that hotel room for less. So I thought, let's do that for medicine and dental and plastic surgery. Go around to MRI companies and say, hey, MRI company, you have a $2 million machine that's sitting there unused on Tuesday at two o'clock. How low can we create this virtual market? to find clients that would go into it. Back in the day, you had high deductible policies, right? So you as a patient gave a care because you were paying. So you would call around a little bit and say, okay, it's three grand here and 500 here, to go to 500. 
So the model was I create this virtual marketplace, test it in Arizona, and then to, and send it all over the country. Go have folks come in. I make a percentage of the buy between. So when Obamacare finally kicked in, they got rid of all those high deductible policies, totally eroded that marketplace. So now you have to go where your insurance company tells you to go. So the ability to do a free market inside of healthcare went away. So that business went away. So there's two that I kind of worked on. Third one is I was drawing blood for different labs and getting paid for that. So I had 12 employees between Phoenix and Tucson inside of medical practices, bringing in ancillary revenues for these doctor practices to go. So it was very complicated business, very frustrating business. And I am so glad I'm out of it. (laughs) So you were working for a medical practice. Am I right? This is the first time in decades that you've had a W-2? Couldn't have been a better dude. We're, We're really close friends. So it wasn't like a boss and he just let me go and we grew it and we, he made money with it. And then I was trying to find extra businesses outside of him or around him or and like a bolt on businesses that would work here. And then I could take elsewhere. So I always had that entrepreneur eye doing the radio show, winding my other businesses down. So yeah, first time I'd been employed in a long time. And I thought that too, like, can I do this? You know, can I go and work for somebody or be with somebody? Turns out he was the perfect person to do it. He's a very dear friend still. Sounds like. It was the no rules environment that you you needed. Totally. Yeah, totally. And by then I'd been losing my buildings and 08 was hitting and trash wasn't where nothing was working. So it gave me some stability and it let me say, okay, let's figure this industry out. It gives you some time to learn. Again, amazingly important time. But I ran bills at the legislature. I, you know, I, I got involved in policy stuff, started a podcast on on healthcare solutions. And it was just sad to see. In fact, as I'm talking with these doctors, these medical doctors, I've been practicing for 40 years, you know, and they're old and great and they're amazing at their craft. And I'll say, okay, hey, Obamacare is making us click this box or you click this box about does the person own a gun or whatever the stupid rule was at the time. You remember all those were coming at us so like insane. I remember Dr. Mahali said, me, he looked at me, he goes, are you stupid? I said, no, nope, I'm not stupid. He says, I'm not clicking that box. I said, well, there's about 10 boxes we're clicking for you behind the scenes. This is one you have to click because you're a, a medical professional. And if you don't click it, you're not going to get paid. So what my job was during this, this takeover of medicine is to crush the dreams of these doctors and what their profession used to be and was and will never be again. The young guys that came into it were ready for it. They're ready for the electronic medical records. But the old guys love to talk to a patient when you walk in the door. So I got to experience working with a professional. So when I jump over to work with teachers, it's the opposite. So now I'm saying to them, hey, you've been shackled in your public schools about taking this test and doing it this way. And I'm here to tell you, I'm going to do that behind the scenes for you. I want you to be a magical teacher. I want you to use your profession to impact the kids. So I got to see this contrast between taking away from a professional and giving to a professional and how beautiful that was, which if I hadn't done, if I haven't done the takeaway, I wouldn't understand the beauty of giving it back. So Another little a shorter side. But again, God prepared me each step, man. So you did the medical thing for a few years. And from there, is that when you got into charter schools? Yeah. So I interview this author on my show. We would do that quite often. His name is Dr. Kevin Lehman. He wrote 50 books on marriage and family. His most famous and kind of his early first one was a birth order, where you are in your family and how you turned out. Like I'm a firstborn, so I'm pretty prepared. Yep, same. Babies are your salespeople. I mean, just it's from Alfred Adler who created the idea. And then Kevin took that and kind of made a story of it. He was on Oprah and Fox News and, very, you know, kind of high profile. 
And we became really close friends. I remember saying, to, he has a story where he self-deprecates himself. Like he was a mess up all through school and he did a 180. I remember like the second or third interview, I've got five minutes left on the air before we go hard break and we're off. And I said, uh, Kevin, Dr. Lehman, you talk about this mess up you were and you did a 180. What happened? And he proceeded to tell me that he found Christ and his wife took him to church. So I'm like, well, there's more to this guy than meets the eye. So went and had breakfast with him, became very close friends. He mentored me as a dad, as a boss, and we just became really, really close. And at breakfast one day, he said, we're having this conversation about America and what's going on. He says, I wish I'd get my books into schools. And I said, have you ever heard of a charter school? And that's how that started. And one thing led to another. We wrote our first charter to the state of Arizona in 2014. We got approved. We got funded on a brand new campus. I think it was 12 or 15 million bucks. Again, a development background <laughs> that I didn't think I would need or use or do ever again. And we opened up our doors on 2015 to 500 kids. The next year, we opened up to 1,000. The next year, 2,000. Next year, almost 4,000. Absolutely hit it. Doubled. I mean, as an entrepreneur, as you do this for a long time and things just hit, you just know they're hitting, right? And you're just like, please, let's not mess this up. And I was trying to figure out why is this working? And what our model is, is classical education. And classical education started with back in Socrates, you had the Lyceum. So we're talking old school, but it's based on the classical liberal arts, great classic literature, values and virtues are super, super important. And as we read, read about the literature, history is the art and parents were just ready for that. With all this goofy stuff at schools that's going on, it was free. So it's not a private school. So you're getting that private school experience for free, brand new campus, state-of-the-art security professional teachers, the scent as you walk in the front door, the music playing, the waxed floors. I mean, we just showed up different. Marketing company did all of our branding, Tagline Media in Tucson with Deb Weisel, did all the branding, all the location, you know, had Dr. Lehman front and center, we website presence, color themes. I mean, we just did it right. And it worked at every turn. So that's how I went from haircuts, cell phones, radio, ultimately charges. But again, mission, right? So I've, I've done all these amazing businesses, but this is the one that's like, all right, you know, this is your forever home. I'm not looking for the next one. I'm looking for how do I make this one big and important? And so that leads into ethos logos, Greek, Latin. Yeah. Greek ethics and logic. The third is pathos, ethos, logos, pathos, pathos is the faith beast or the, so as I started the CEO spot at Lehman, I'm thinking we have got to systematize, right? That's my business background. And we had a growth strategy that was pretty moving. So I thought we got to get this figured out because I've got, at one point, we had 125 new teachers coming in the door every year. Every year, How do you train them? How do you hire them? How do you, what are they going to do when they walk in the door? And how do they understand our culture? And all those things that I had learned in the past came to fruition. So I embarked upon, a, you know, since what, 2015 to now, this journey of systematizing every aspect of running an American school, classical ed. And what is now there is a publishing company called Ethos Logos, where I have hundreds of products that that all line up and they're all specific to teachers. We wrote a book about how it works. There's a whole digital suite. So should we have a COVID event again, we can not miss a beat and be right online. Or if I open a new school, which I'm working on in North Carolina right now, Day one, all those teachers know exactly where they're going and what they're doing. I know how to run the lunch program. I know how to build the campus, wax the floor. Everything is systematized, which is unique to what a business does. American public schools are so not there, right? 
And that's the unique piece we bring to the table. So you're a publishing company. Is there a consulting aspect to it too? Like, do you come in and help actually coach them getting off the ground or is it more just, Hey, here's the resource, go do this. There's five things we do. First is help those nonprofit boards, whatever their states are at, to write the charter application, get approved by their by their local municipality. We work on the finance and the construction. I don't do either of those things, but I, I've worked with six, seven, eight, ten different groups that I bring to that board. So make sure they don't make the mistakes I made with financing. And just to put in perspective, the group that I ran, I think we had $80 million in, in bond-financed construction, and we've done seven campuses. We're in our number eighth, about 7,000 kids now come to our schools, K-8. So I've done that. The big one is teacher professional development, hiring training, giving them that profession back. Then it's um, curriculum, you know, English, writing, history, math, kind of scope and sequence to make sure that we do well in the state tests and the teachers know what they're doing every day. And the final one, the one that's probably the most important and, and why parents are picking us is character education, values and virtues. Basically, Catholic schools have been doing it for 100 years, private schools using the Bible. In the public sector, you can't do that. So I've embarked upon, I got my master's degree in this this field. I've embarked upon writing, I wrote a book on character ed, how to embed that into a school to be effective and to be impactful. If you get that part right, education works great too. Kids love to come to school and they feel welcomed and a part of it. So you can just take these two. You can take, you know, we can help you develop and I leave. I mean, there's all kinds of things. My goal is how do I open more classical charter schools around the country? It can be a charter. It can be a private that wants to convert. It can be a group of parents that want to, a church that wants to open a private, whatever denomination. In the big market lately is homeschool. As all this craziness is happening around the country, lots of parents don't have choices. So they're literally just jumping out and saying, I'm going to do it myself. And what I have is something to help them make sure that they're on path to do that. Because as we built this for our teachers to come in day one and know right what to do for each subject, it now applies to the homeschool family too. So think of me like Microsoft has an operating system, but then they have Word, Excel, and Publisher and all the different pieces. So you can do the whole shebang or you can just say, I like your English and uh, I can help you with that. So I'm betting big that what America needs and what families want, because I've seen it in the marketplace, is character-based, old-school, classical, liberal arts education. So that's what gets me up every day. That's where I spend my time. I've got a team of teachers that are building. I've got professional development folks. I've got operation people that are all ready. I've worked in about six different states. I will tell you the politics of this has gotten really, really hairy. Your state of Texas, I've applied four times with different groups, all turned down, and that was never the case before. So about 2018, the regulatory group came in and really made it hard to, to open these things, slowed the industry down big time. But you've got vouchers that have been popping up where they're funding the students instead of the systems. So then all of a sudden now there's an opportunity to take this operational structure in voucher states. There's about 10 of those. So the entrepreneur always finds a way. You know, you can keep putting those, the bureaucratic blocks or the mark, whatever you want in front of me, we're going to find a way around it. That's what we do. And we just keep attacking and keep pushing because it's, it's right. And it's because what's, it's what this country needs. How many people do you have in the organization working with you? Right now I've got uh, four in the leadership and I've got about six in contract building out content. You said that you're in your sweet spot. You're getting to use all of the, the things that you've learned over the years and it's tied to mission. So I know you're not going to go start another business unless it's somehow directly related to this. 
what is next? You know, I've, I've been asked to do CEO stuff or take on things. And if it doesn't fit this narrow band, I'm, I'm really saying no. So I don't know, man, it's been a long five years of trying to get this to happen. And so just to give you an example, first seven charters that I wrote all got approved, 107 for seven. Last 14, I've gotten one approved. And it's just gotten so incredibly complicated. And we talk about that frustration and rules and bureaucracy. The industry has successfully been shut down by whoever you want to call it. Teachers unions, bureaucracies, existing school districts, competitors, rent seeking, whatever. They've done a good job. And when you talk to architects and lenders that are in this space, they all feel the same thing. Existing charters that are operating can expand, but anybody new entrant into the market is just being blocked. And it's going to give... Because, you know, when you poll both Democrats and Republicans, you're in the 68 to 75 percent. They want school choice. Right. So you got the voters pressuring. You got many of these red states. You got elected officials like, yeah, we're, we're doing charters. But when the two of them find out there's no more capacity coming and it's being blocked in the bureaucracy, something's going to break. And I think you're seeing these vouchers being one of the breaks. The Supreme Court did a decision a couple years back that said you could fund the parent, not a Catholic school or private school, but you give it to the parent then they could go where they want to go. That opened the market. So there's always a way. Healthcare, I mentioned to you, is about 20% of the market as far as GDP and size. Education is probably the next biggest. You know? So it's super, super important. And we're starting to have some real hard looks at what we're teaching in the classroom, how we're teaching in the classroom, what the end product is. Are we trying to build factory workers today or do we want critical thinkers? What role do these stupid phones have in lives? You know, And what's that doing to our kids' brains? And how do we get them to think about the good, the true, and the beautiful? How do Who instills morals and values? And what does that look like? You know, how does school complement what's happening at home, or the church, or your community? I mean, we're, I see us pulled at the seams at every turn. I wrote a book about it, 12 Arguments Why America's on the Wrong Track. So I, I've identified the problem. The fix is not easy. And it's long and it's a slog. And whether you're, whatever business you're in listening, keep doing it. But keep an eye towards that, because what market are you going to have if we don't fix this place? If we don't have the country that I grew up in, that I love and that you love and you know, there for the next generation. So for me, there's no more important spot to spend. Earlier, you talked about how a lot of people have ideas, but they don't they don't move past the idea. You, you phrased it a little bit different, but I think it was something in that vein. Why do you think that is? I think it comes to when you're really, really young. And are you told you can do anything or are you told, oh, don't be careful? I think it goes way back that far. So that's where it starts. I think it's a muscle. So the more you do it, the more confidence you get, and the more ability you have, the more you can do it. I think it's like any profession. You've got to have mistakes and you got to learn and you got to research and read. Okay, I'm not going to do that again. Or I think it's being able to get outside your comfort zone and ask and talk and meet and mentor and research and find someone that, that you can just say, hey, you know, I'm looking to do a retail center. What should I look out for? All right, well, make sure you're, you're, where's the market at? What's the cap rate? You know, how much cash you got in it? All those different things that people have done it before you. But I think the start of it is I can do anything versus, well, man, what if it doesn't work? And maybe it's not me. And, you know, that's the root of it. And I think that starts when you're, when you're really, really young. Let me ask you that question. That's a good question. What do you think? I think it's fear. And I think you, in a way, kind of alluded to that. I think it's fear. I think it's fear of failure. And I think that that fear of failure has two components to it. One, and I think probably the overarching is the financial aspect of the fear of failure. And the second is the emotional, social 
aspect of the fear of failure. Nobody wants to go to their high school reunion and, you know, have tell people about their failed ventures, right? You want to go back and, and be a success and you want to have the financial success with it. And I think that most people that take the risk have found a way to get over the fear. Yeah. It's either, it was probably motivator. It was for me. Like, I've got to make payroll. Like, what am I going to do? I got a mortgage and a young kid. So let's go, you know, or it's paralyzed you to the point you don't do it. That's good stuff. But I, I've helped so many people through these stories of opening what I opened and handing it to them that once they're in it, they love it. They just love it, but they just could never make that first step. So being a part of that journey for them and being a part of that story for them is beautiful. And we're still friends to this point. There's not, we all like each other. And we, I, you know, the true test of this is, and I've had 14 or 15 partnerships in my background is when you're making money, it's easy, but when you're not, how you doing? Are you sticking through it? And those that have have become my dearest friends when we've lost money and it's really, really tough and we're struggling with our families and we're trying to, you know, and we're still talking today. That's character. Your story is so different from all of the guests that we've had up to this point. One of the things that we see with a lot of our guests is they start doing things and eventually, you know, it grows and they hire people that take on some of their responsibilities and they go do these other things sounds like you've always kind of had enough people around you that you were able to kind of divide the labor. Today, what are the things that you enjoy doing the most and what are the things you enjoy the least? Great question. Well, I like it all. And that's the reason I do what I do, right? I love marketing. I love cleaning the toilets. I love every aspect of it because it's so mentally challenging. I am not someone you could put in that box and say, okay, your job is HR today. You know, I love the variety of it. I've come to really love building and creating people and encouraging people and getting them to be better and better at what they do. Back to that, taking away the autonomy of the doctors and giving it to the teachers. Some of my top leaders were low 30s, 28s, 32s that are leading major organizations that they never would get a chance to just because they were so good. Then, you know, there's other issues, right? They're maybe not ready ego-wise or mentality-wise. We have to come around them. But I love that part of the process of, of building through people. I'm in the people business. All my businesses have been in the people business. So that's super important. And it was always my job to go the furthest, do the most, be there first, let them see that to set the tone of what we expect. We've fired a lot of people. That's part of it too. And usually there's a lot of warnings and a lot of conversations and we're trying to come around, but sometimes it's just, look, you're not a fit here. Then I look at how that, why did I hire you and where did it go wrong or whatnot? So that's part of it. But I've gotten the point as you get big, I mean, we had 550 employees and we're you know, we had a lot of moving parts. You have to lead through through people, understanding their job to the very nuance of it, right? So I did I did the janitor contract for a semester with a couple guys, so I could learn that process. So now when I go into school, first place I go is the special ed department because that's such a difficult, and I want every manager and every own every every uh, principal in my school to see that's important to me because that's an important part of our business. And the second is the janitors and the people that clean the floors. And I'll make note of, hey, this looks great. You did an amazing job. So it's the little things like that. It's leading through people and setting an example and know what's important to you. Looking back on any and all of your ventures, including Ethos today, is there anything you would go back and do different? Not one thing. Not one thing. No. How about you? I would have embraced the growth earlier and hired sooner and probably been a little bit more aggressive. 
I'm not unhappy with the way that things have, have turned out at all. But if I were going to change something, that would be it. Yeah. How about getting over your skis and cash running out of cash? I mean, that's always the game, right? Is that, it's like throttling your car. Like, it's going to get it right there. Perfect. With, that, with hindsight, you can say that. But at the time, what made you not do that is probably the better question. Yeah, I definitely have that fear of failure and really the, the financial aspect of it. And when I left my old firm, I jumped off a cliff financially. I mean, I didn't have a project lined up. I wouldn't take in customers. I wouldn't do that ethically anyway, but I wasn't taking customers. So I literally fell off a cliff financially and, and started from nothing. And it was great when the money finally started coming in and then the work picked up. And at a point, it was like, I clearly can't do this all by myself. I had to get over, you said this multiple times, you get paid last when you're the owner. And that's my mentality too, right? And so the idea of, okay, now I have to put food on somebody else's table. The responsibility of that, right? It's a big one. Thousand yep. percent. Because yep. no longer just you against the world or you and your family. It's like, oof. So when you start making those, like the look back question on that investment, you think, God, man, if I mess this up, I could wreck not just me, but others. Nobody understands it until you do it. Making my first hire was one of the hardest decisions I've made in this business. And we share faith background. And, and one of my prayers was, if this doesn't work, like, don't let it harm them. If it's going to harm anybody, let it harm me, but, but don't let this harm them. And thankfully, it's worked out pretty good. Nobody knows it until you do it, right? No one knows how lonely and how hard, but how rewarding. I mean, I wouldn't change a thing. Love the journey, man. Hopefully, I, it sounds like you do too. That's why you're doing this show. You're trying to tell these stories. It's good. It's good work. One of the things I learned early on was that when you're on your own, the good days are better and the bad days are worse. Yeah. <laughs> and that speaks to that that right. loneliness you, you mentioned. Well, getting into the home stretch here, you mentioned you've got people that you mentor. Is there a consistent piece of advice that you find yourself giving over and over? I stumbled across this Brahman theory of, I deal with men a lot, not so much women, but there's four stages in a man's life. You're getting poured into by your society. So you're young and you're going to school and you're getting all your effort, right? When you get to be about 18 to 25, maybe 30, your job is to look, look attractive to the mate and get the career and be the guy that gets the girl. This stage is the midlife crisis, right? So about 45, you've built your career and you're moving and you kind of have that existential crisis. Like, what am I doing? What's this for? Why am I here? What, you know? So me telling this guy when I was 25 or 27 to slow down and take care of your family and don't work so hard. Like, yeah, right. You know, but if I get a 45 year old that's still chasing this stuff, I start having a much different conversation. How's it working for you? Is that it? Is it just money? Is it just the, the, the how's your faith life? How's your relationship with your friends? How's taking time for yourself? It's knowing who I'm mentoring at those periods of time, isn't it? Because I've been there. I'm sure you've been there. Most of us have, right? Now it's helped me now find partners. Because if you're 60 and you're still trading in the wife and getting the car and getting the new house, it's like we're going to have a conversation about, I don't want to get too close to you because you're going to be 80 and doing that same stupid stuff. But let's have a deep, like, where are you going? And let's line it all up and let's go where we want to go together consistently. But I'm only going to let you so far in. Does that make sense a little bit? But those four stages really made sense to me because I lived it, man. When I was here, it was a, I was a whole different dude than when I'm here. And I have people in my life that, you know, knock me on the head sometimes and go, Hey, dummy, it's not about money and business. Slow down, do this, go find some balance. So it's be a mentor, understand where your, your people are, 
and have people that hold you accountable to those four. And I always work towards this. We all need that person or multiple people in our lives that can say, hey, dummy, what are you doing here? Well, Joe, is there, is there anything that you'd hope to cover that we haven't got to yet? No, man. It, it's a very thorough interview. Uh, I didn't plan on going this deep into all these little subsections. And you bring back so many memories and so many things. Wouldn't change it for the world. I highly encourage anyone out there that's looking at this career choice to do it. Don't be afraid to get uncomfortable. Let the fear motivate you. And when you look back and on the rocking chair when you're in your 90s, what do you want that legacy to look like? Hopefully, you left everything on the field. Great way to end it. Joe, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was Joe Higgins, founder and CEO of Ethos Logos Publishing. To learn more about his latest venture, visit ethoslogos.org. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 